it says this. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Tony, we'll come, we'll pray. And Father, I pray for my brother Tony, and as he, um, as he speaks your word to us to lead us and guide us um, into um, loving each other um, together as a church, um, that you um, give him all the, the strength and confidence and wisdom that he needs um, to, to fully represent um, you and your word this morning, Lord. We love you. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Did I break the microphone? Oh, there we go. Hi, guys. Um, I, I've spoken with most of you one-on-one -on -one about a number of subjects, um, but one of the things that has come up with most of my conversations with you is church history. Um, just about everybody in this room was a part of a church before they were a part of this church, right? And for many of you, I've heard some pretty interesting church stories of, um, there's no real polite way to put this, of just complete dysfunction. And so you're with a group of people that you call your church family. Um, you're attempting to honor the Lord in that context, but things just get weird and people get crazy. I, I risk, I know I've told this story to many of you, but the, one of the things that stands out in my mind, because I've had a similar experience, was the first church that I was ever a part of um, had become a Christian, had been a Christian for maybe about a year, and was at a Wednesday night business meeting, which they held once a month, and in the midst of the meeting, an argument broke out. Now, I don't remember what the argument was actually about, which tells you how important it was, because if it was something key, if it was something big, like, uh, you know, voting on a pastor or a building or something like that, I would remember what it is. Now, this was something that was just like, daily business that needed to be taken care of, and an argument broke out, and there was shouting and yelling and no order in the room, and then eventually, the, the, the thing I remember most distinctly in my mind is the head deacon, you know, Brother Bob, sitting in the front of the room, uh, you know, trying to, trying to conduct the chaos, you know what I mean? And uh, apparently he said something that... Uh, this guy who was the bus minister, basically the guy who drove the bus to pick up some kids and bring them to church, said something he didn't like, and he started coming down the aisle, approaching the front, saying, you want to go settle this outside? Right? Ah, church family, right? Um, I was young, I was impressionable, and I was watching the head deacon and the bus minister, both leaders in my life, right? Uh, talk about going outside and fighting, like punching each other. And uh, though I wasn't very mature in my faith, I knew enough of the Bible. <laughs> I knew enough of who Christ was to know that like this isn't what a healthy church looks like. 
this is not a healthy church. We talk about being a healthy church a lot at Chorus. Um, it, it's been featured heavily in sermons, um, in the, the liturgy leading up to sermons. We've talked about it in our MCs. We've gone through, in many of our MCs, entire books that are about being a part of a healthy church. And it's been a part of a lot of our conversations. Why do we come to Chorus? Why are we a part of a church plant? A lot of us would say primarily one of those reasons is I want to be a part of a healthy church family where I love them, they love me, and it's not dysfunctional. But what separates a healthy church from an unhealthy church? Like, how does a church become healthy? How does it stay healthy? We all say we want one. We all say that's what we want to experience it. But how do you get there? Like, how do you avoid, you know, fighting in the parking lot over stupid issues? Stuff that I'm sure neither of those men thought would ever happen, right? I doubt they went to church on Sunday thinking, hmm, I think I'll get in a fight this week with a, with a fellow brother. How do we get there? Um, as we work through the rest of 1 Thessalonians, uh, we come to a part of the book where Paul is just rapid fire. I joked earlier with someone, like, I don't know if Paul's, like, running out of paper, and, you know, he's coming towards the end of the letter, and he's like, oh, got a few more things to say. Um, or if it's just he's gone through the main bulk of his subject in the book, and he's just adding some stuff on the end. Um, but we, we basically get a chunk and a paragraph, a couple paragraphs here at the end of the book that is just chock full of commands and urgency and instruction. And, and these first two verses here that we get after kind of the rapid-fire instruction on uh, pastoral leadership that we read about last week um, focuses on everyone in the church. How should we act? How should we be a church? And, uh, and as we go through these, hopefully as we, as we think about, you know, what is it to be a healthy church? We'll get some answers. We'll see it demonstrated for us in the passage. So I'm just going to go ahead and read our entire uh, section again, and then we'll just start working through. It says this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And so we'll start off with just the first phrase in verse 14. And we urge you, brothers. We've seen this word urge. I urge you time and time again in Thessalonians. Whenever Paul comes to a subject that he feels is particularly important, something that the people in the church at Thessalonica need to do, he says, I urge you to do this. And so again, we run into Paul's urgency. And who is he urging? He says, I urge you, brothers. Now, this is important, the fact that he says, brothers, um, because it identifies the people he's talking to over the next few verses. So if we're coming out of the, uh, the last couple of verses, we, we find Paul saying, brothers, respect those who are your leaders, right? Remember that? And then he gives some instruction about what the leaders are supposed to do, which we, we talked about last week. And with some of the information that we see here, you might think, just based on what Paul is saying, go do this, you might think, that he's talking to the leaders. 
Um, because as we read this, we see clear markers of discipleship, things that people do to help other Christians grow. And there are many churches which believe and, or, or practice, even though they don't believe, um, this, this basic idea that it's the pastor's job, it's the church leader's job to keep track of everyone in the congregation and to make sure that they get what they want, what they need to help them grow, right? We've all probably known churches like this. Maybe we've been in churches like that. Um, kind of the idea is of we pay you to disciple us. But what we see from Paul here is not just that the pastor has the job of discipling people in the church, but that everyone in the church has the job to help disciple other people in the church. And so whenever Paul says, I urge you brothers, he's speaking to the same brothers that he told to respect the leaders, right? Brothers, respect your leaders, and now brothers, do this. And so know that as we talk about each of these things that he says to do, he's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to, to every Christian in the church of Thessalonica and, and then by extension the church at large as we have in the scriptures. And so that's the phrase we start off with. Um, in the same sentence, he gives four commands. The first one is this. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Now, depending on the translation that you're reading out of, you may have a couple different words. Um, it may say, admonish the lazy, or admonish the disruptive, um, admonish the disorderly. First off, we need to identify who is he talking about whenever he says idol, right? If he's telling Christians everywhere to admonish, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, the idol, we first need to know who that group is. Like, what is who's, who does he mean? Um, the original Greek word here, um, and this is, this is true of a lot of, a lot of Scripture, we acknowledge the Scripture was originally written in the Greek language, right? We read from English translations. We're blessed by the fact that there have been scholars and theologians who have studied the original languages, studied the history of the church, and have come to the Scripture and, and translated words for us. But English and ancient Greek are are different, very different languages. And whenever we come to a word like idol, it can be hard for just one English word to really capture everything that the Greek word means. Does that make sense? So if I just say lazy to you, right, someone who's idle or lazy, you might have your, in, in, in your mind a picture of someone who just like, you know, kind of takes the day off and doesn't do anything. They're being lazy, right? But the picture that we have uh, in, in the Greek word is, is lazy, it is idleness, that is true, but it also carries the connotation of like a disruptive idleness. So elsewhere in Greek literature, it's used for people in a military unit, and whenever you're supposed to line up, like stand rank and file, it's used for people who like are slouching, or who are you know, kind of out of line. Does that make sense? So not only are they lazy or idle, but it's a disruptive idleness. It's a laziness that doesn't just affect them, that affects the whole church. And so the image that we have here is of someone who's not just lazy sometimes, but has a lack of discipline that impacts everyone around them. 
This isn't you having a bad day. Make sense? And so Paul tells the Thessalonican uh, believers, admonish the idol. How do lazy people, idle people, hurt the church? That's a question we're going to ask as we go through each of these. If it affects everyone around them, what does it do? Um, whenever people in the church are chronically lazy, like they're, they're lazy as a character trait, not just having a bad day, how does that hurt the church? Well, first off, lazy people in the church need constant provision. Does that make sense? Like we have the stereotypical image in our mind of maybe an American who's lazy, like the guy who lives in his parents' basement, you know, in his late 30s and has no job and doesn't want to get a job and plays video games, right? That's maybe a, a stereotypical image that's pushed. A person who's chronically lazy has to have things provided for them, right? Um, this is just a fact of adulthood. You have to be productive enough to, like, feed yourself and clothe yourself and, you know, have shelter. Like, there's an expectation of when you become an adult, what it means to be a responsible adult is to pull your own weight. But for people who are chronically idle, they don't pull their own weight. And so that means they either die in a gutter on the street or their family, their church family, pulls extra weight to provide for them. So people in the church who are chronically lazy, who don't pull their own weight, end up putting more work on the people around them. Um, oftentimes, honestly, it's the people who are, who are just really responsible but, on, but overworked, you know? We've all known the people who would just give the shirts off their back. They're always there. They're always serving. They show up to everything. They're always like... The people that already work the hardest almost always end up being the ones that pick up the slack for the people who don't work at all. And so it hurts the church. Lazy people also need constant management, right? If you have someone who's constantly lazy, not only do they need provision, but they need someone to just help them through the details of their life. Um, also another part of being a good functioning adult in society is being able to take care of your own business, right? So it starts off for a lot of us whenever we go to college, and our parents used to do all the paperwork with the state for school before that, but now all of a sudden we've got to sign the papers, and we've got to show up on the certain days, and we've got to et cetera, et cetera. Or it starts with us in the workforce, right? Because whenever you're assigned a time to be at work, your boss expects you to be there, at the time that they assigned, right? But people who are lazy, people who are, are chronically idle, have to be managed just through the basic details of life. You know? So your mom hollers up the stairs and says, hey, you're going to be late to work, right? Or in my case, is my chronically idle self, Brianna. I, so this is, a, this is confession time. I'm trying to learn how to adult, you know? In my early 20s, I'm dating Bree, and she would drive over and like give me a kiss on the cheek before I would drive off to work in the morning. It was real sweet of her. But she would show up some days and hear my alarm going off, and I'm still asleep. I've said this before, right? She's, you know, chronically idle people have to be managed. Um, and it hurts the church. 
And they take resources, this is another thing, they take resources from those who are truly in need. If we in the church are just always managing and providing for the idle, the lazy among us, it takes our resources when someone comes in that's really, really in need. Like physical and mental disabilities are, are a reality that most of us have seen or personally know. There are folk who through no fault of themselves, no, no laziness, no idleness, need real help. They need real provision and they need some help with management. And whenever we give that help to the lazy, it hurts our ability to actually help those in need. And those who are lazy also hurt themselves. They destroy their friendships, their reputations. You know, they never show up. They're flaky. And they short-circuit the work of God in their lives. It's hard to grow in the faith when you just can't be bothered. So that's who we're talking about when we talk about the idol. And what are we as a church, as Christians, supposed to do to help them? It says admonish them. Uh, for those of you who were here last week, you'll remember this word, admonish, um, because it was something we talked about then. It basically means instruction that carries a warning, right? And so to admonish someone who's idle means that we, uh, hopefully not being idle, are willing to come alongside that person and say, I am going to, number one, warn you that your laziness, that your idleness will ruin your life and it hurts everybody else. Like, no one wants to be on the wrong end of that conversation, right? You're lazy and it's affecting everyone. Pull your weight. Like, it means a warning, but it also means instruction, a willingness to come along them, alongside and say, you have problems with time management? Let me help teach you what that looks like. You know, you have problems uh, getting up on time and getting to places on time? Let me equip you to help you get out of that. Admonish them. We do it with words. We tell them what to do. And we do it with our deeds and our example. And so, you know, it's, it's hard for us to go to someone and say, stop being flaky if we ourselves are flaky. And so we come alongside, we admonish, we serve, we instruct. Let's move on to the second group. The second one, it says, we urge you brothers to encourage the faint-hearted. So who are the faint-hearted? If you're faint-hearted, um, it means that you're timid or you're disheartened. It means that, that you have a, a weak will. Not morally, but whenever you come up against something that's hard or that seems frightening or scary or big or intimidating, you, you just kind of wilt. Does that, does that make sense? So you're faint-hearted. And what we have in that is a picture of someone that has weak faith. Weak faith. So you and I are faint-hearted when we lack the faith to face the difficulties in our lives. And that's all of us at times, right? Life becomes overwhelming whenever a, a big bill comes in the mail that we didn't expect. And we're like, oh, we don't know what to do, what we're going to do. And the trust evaporates. And our spirit kind of deflates. And we sink into a depression because of something happened. You know, something bad happened. We're, we're faint-hearted. 
the opposite of being faint-hearted is someone who has a strong faith, right? Um, and, and like, like <laughs> many, many of us have seasons where we're faint-hearted. Many of us have seasons where we've got a strong faith in something, right? Maybe we just took our vitamins the day before. We prayed up extra, but something bad comes along, right? Something bad, and we're like, you know what? It's going to be okay. Um, if your household is, is anything like ours, um, we flip-flop back and forth, my wife and I, on who's who. Like, if I'm the one panicking, a lot of the times God will give her the strength to be like, no, no, don't worry, it's going to be okay. She's the one panicking, then I'm the one that's like, oh, it's going to be okay. But someone who's faint-hearted um, is someone who has a weak faith, so that when difficulty comes, they feel like they're going to be crushed. They feel like they're not going to make it out. And they are people who need help. How do people who are faint-hearted hurt the church? Think about that, because these things are not just things that affect ourselves. They affect those around us. Um, if we as a church are going to fight together to have a healthy church, then we recognize that faint-heartedness, that weak faith within the church, affects the whole body. How they can hurt the church or hold the church back is that they peel away whenever they're most needed. So a crisis is happening in the church, something big, something intimidating that requires all of us to pull together, right? And if there are some among us who are faint-hearted, when we need them most, they can peel away. The other way that uh, those who are faint-hearted can hurt the church is that they lack the conviction, they can lack the conviction to stand up for what's right. Um, one of the reasons that the church I told you about early on was unhealthy was because there were a lot of faint-hearted people in the room. And whenever an attitude came along that was unrighteous and wrong and mean, no one wanted to stand up and say, that's wrong, that's mean, until things became so horrific that tempers would flare, right? But there was no one who would stand up, not in anger, but just in conviction, and say, guys, this isn't right. This isn't right. If the church is full of people who are faint-hearted, whenever false doctrine, damaging doctrine comes along, no one wants to rock the boat. Um, whenever they're in a, a you know, like a, an MC or, or a fight club and discussion turns to gossip, like the faint-hearted the faint might recognize that it's gossip, but their faith is too weak to, to say, hey guys, we need to stop. This isn't right. So it harms the church. And they also hurt themselves because they're easily pushed around by those who seem strong. Many churches that are unhealthy will be filled with people who are faint-hearted and then also filled with people who project strength, right? So I'm talented, I'm important, I'm big, I'm strong, and I know what to do. And this is what we're going to do as a church. Whether they're uh, an official leader or, you know, like a lay leader, just someone in the church who's influential in the church. Like, people who are faint-hearted, even though they may know better, can find themselves easily pushed around by those with seared consciences. And so what do we do for the faint-hearted? 
the scripture says we encourage them. We encourage them. The faint-hearted, the timid, are not to be rebuked and berated. Um, they're not to be cajoled, made fun of. A lack of faith, a weak faith, is a very real problem. I don't want to smooth that over. Um, and a lack of faith often comes from, well, not just often, every time, comes from sin, from actual sin. Why do we have a lack of faith? Generally, because we worship idols, we're distracted, we're weak, we're in sin in some area in our life. It's a real problem. Like our faith, our need for faith, that's everything, right? That's everything to us. Our faith in Christ, our belief that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do, that's why we're here. That's why we worship. The faith that Rich said just before as we, as we sang, it's given to us. And so when it's weak, that's a real problem. But we don't go to someone with weak faith even though it comes from sin, <laughs> rebuke them necessarily. The first thing we do for those who are truly faint-hearted is we encourage them. The word encourage here is also translated throughout the Bible um, with the word comfort. So we come alongside them. We comfort them. We say kind words. We seek to draw out the best in them. This is where we rehearse the truth of the gospel. So if you're in a small group, if you're with a friend, and they're, they're, they're confessing to you that they're weak in the faith right now, that they don't know where they are spiritually, that they feel faint-hearted, the best thing that you can do for them is to encourage them with the truth of the gospel. It doesn't matter how you feel right now. You may feel like God is distant, but he's right here. Your feelings don't constitute reality. God loves you. He's for you. He sent his son to die for you. Your sin was nailed to the cross. The things that, that cling to your soul and hold you back and weaken your faith have been done away with in Christ. Be encouraged. The situation you're going through now is temporary. It's fleeting. There will come a day in glory when you will hurt no more and face no more financial setbacks and you won't have any of this. Friends, encourage the faint-hearted. The third thing it says, I urge you brothers, help the weak. Help the weak. Now, if we look for a specific group here, who are the weak? It's a bit more difficult than the first two. It's hard to say exactly if, if Paul has a specific person or group of people in mind whenever he says help the weak. Um, the word that's used for the weak is used throughout the scripture to talk about people who are weak in different areas. Um, it's often used for those who struggle spiritually. Um, in the sense, it's, it's used for people in, in Romans who have weak consciences. 
And so they have to insert all these extra rules into their life to feel like they're, they're being godly, right? And Paul says, those are weak brothers and sisters who need to lean on extra rules to feel like they're righteous um, because their righteousness is truly in Christ and they don't, they don't need the extra rules. Paul uses it for those who are spiritually weak in that regards. He also uses it for those who are morally weak. So people who are believers, they confess the name of Christ, but they're just having a hard time controlling their passions. So um, Paul writes to several churches that are filled with sexual sin, (laughs) uh, things that they know they shouldn't do, um, relationships they know they shouldn't be involved in, and Paul calls them weak. Um, So those who struggle morally. And it can also be those who struggle socially, um, those who are in low financial classes, low social classes, those who don't have mobility, that, that are, by the situation of their life, weak. They don't have resources. Um, so it's used throughout the scripture in different ways. And so whenever Paul says, help the weak, maybe in the context of the Thessalonian church, he, he thinks of more, one more than the other. But the general principle is true, that the church is to come alongside those who are weak in any of these areas, Right? to serve them, specifically to help them. How do people who are weak harm the church? This varies depending on the type of weakness. Um, The first two, um, we see it in the the kind of broad trends of either being legalistic or full of license, right? So the people who feel like they need extra rules to be righteous, they they can get to the point where they start to put those rules on other people, right? Rules get a mind of their own. And before you know it, you're in a church where not only do you need to believe in Jesus and follow the Bible, but you also have a whole list of all these other rules that actually aren't in the book that you have to do. Certain clothes you have to wear, certain songs you have to sing, certain songs you can't sing, etc., etc. Those rules become malignant and can hijack the gospel in churches. On the, on the opposite side, for those who struggle morally, if you just say, oh, just let that go, um, you know, God's grace covers you, so just whatever. Moral chaos can infect a church and destroy it. Um, adultery and fornication can spread through a body and kill it. Greed And corruption can spread through a body and kill it. They harm themselves because they have a confused religion. Or they're soaked in their own corruption. You can't grow in Christ when you're in those places. As for those who are socially weak, um, I, I don't feel like we can talk about them as if as if they, they harm the church or if they, they really harm themselves, uh, at least not intentionally, because generally they're, they're victims of circumstance. And the truth is, is that the early church was filled with people who were poor and who were slaves, who were victims of circumstance, and the scripture calls us to help them as well. Um, it's, but it's hard to like stick a finger in their chest and say, stop it, you know, stop being a slave, to which case the slave would say, how, right? 
So moving on, the fourth command, the last one in this verse, is be patient with them all. So even though some of these problems are serious, some, even though all of these problems are serious, Paul gives a call to patience. This is perhaps the hardest thing for most of us. For those of us who feel like that we're in a position to instruct others, to help others, to serve others, to disciple others, we can, we can see them and think, oh, they could be so much better if they would just change in this way and this way and this way. And so we come to them and we, maybe we do admonish them for a little bit. Maybe we do encourage them for a little bit. Maybe we do help them for a little bit. But after a while, we don't see the progress that we want to see and we start to get frustrated. So week in and week out at the fight club, it's the same sins, right? And it's like, man, we've talked about this, haven't we? Didn't we do a study on it? Like we read the book, we filled out the worksheets, like we went to a conference and a retreat. Haven't we been over this? You know, the lazy person maybe gets a job but then loses it. Because <laughs> they're trying, but they're not quite there. You know, the faint-hearted person gets a little bit of courage, but then the world beats them back down. Because that's what Satan will do, right? He'll take someone who's making effort to change, who's praying to God for help, and he'll be like, no, I'm going to press in so you stop that, right? He attacks. Maybe the weak person starts to get a little bit stronger, and then they have a bad day. It can be really hard, I'll say this as a leader in the church, it can be really hard to look at people that you love, that you desperately want to grow, struggle with the same problems over and over. And it's okay to hurt for your brother and sister that's stuck in that bad cycle. It's okay to wish that they were farther along than they are. But the second that that holy desire for their better turns into frustration and impatience, then we've lost. For the idle, we can't give up on them. We can't write them off. For the faint-hearted, we have to have enduring encouragement. Even when we come to them to encourage them and they tell us, you know what, I'm just not feeling it. I just don't have the faith. I don't feel like God is real today. Have you ever had that kind of conversation with someone you love that's in a rough place and they just look at you and say, like, I, don't, I just don't feel it? Even when they're there, we have to have enduring encouragement. For the weak, our strength should never be the measure that we use. Why can't you just be like me? Right? A lot of us will look at ourselves and say, like, I'm not awesome. Why can't you just be, like, mildly competent, you know? Just a little stronger. When we become impatient, um, it starts to become about our convenience in dealing with the person and not about their actual growth into holiness and goodness and righteousness. So it boils down to this. We need to see people 
with the eyes of Christ. Friends, you're a sinner. You have sinned a thousand times. You've probably sinned today. And if you didn't sin today by some miracle, you did yesterday. And I'm sure if we looked over the last week at every stray thought and stray word, you would be ashamed. And if we went back far enough, I bet we could find even more extreme things that you're ashamed of. Friend, you're a sinner that Christ didn't give up on the first time. Right? He was patient with you to see you grow. We need to have the same eyes to see people who struggle with patience. We'll enter into the last verse, and we'll go a bit quickly here. Um, This is verse 15. It says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And so Paul has just gone through four commands to help the church seek health where we serve each other, we disciple each other, we strengthen one another. And then he gives this command, if at any time evil does come into the church, right? So someone does you wrong in the church, revenge is not a thing that we do. Um, Have you ever been in an argument where they say a mean thing, so you say a mean thing, and then they say a mean thing, and then you say another mean thing, and before you know it, the entire night is just filled with ridiculousness that happened 10 years ago? Any of us ever been there? Like, it's just meanness and meanness and meanness and meanness. It's like, it's like a whirlpool that you get sucked down as each person retaliates against the other with bigger and bigger and bigger complaints. So it starts with, why didn't you do the dishes? And it ends up like, why do you even live, you know? Those cycles can take over churches. Whenever weaknesses in the church aren't dealt with, whenever people um, don't see each other with the eyes of Christ, um, (laughs) normal, and even if you just got normal sinners, you will have people sin against you in this church. Like, I will probably sin against you. Don't repay evil for evil. Paul says, but always seek to do good. Notice Paul doesn't say accomplish good. He says seek to do it. Because sometimes if a person's angry at you, you can't always just like fix the relationship. It doesn't, relationships don't work that way. But Paul says seek to do good. So whether they're you know, a loved one, someone in the church... And then Paul tacks on everyone here. If they do evil to you, you seek to return their evil with good and grace and patience. And so instead of a cycle that spirals down into ridiculousness, you get a new cycle that builds up until the church is healthy and strong. So let's conclude this with personal application for us. If we want a healthy life, if we want a healthy church, if we want to look at our family and say, this is a good church family, and we want that to be something that we can say five years from now and not just now, right? If we want that to be something that is always true of us, 
then that means it starts with us. If we want a healthy church, we have to seek to be healthy Christians who serve others. It starts with our own belief and acceptance and embrace of the gospel. Do we really believe that we're forgiven? Do we really believe that Christ wants to strengthen us and lead us and build us up? And then when that gospel gives us new eyes, can we look at others and say, Jesus wants to do that for them? And then are we willing to serve? Are we willing to do good even whenever people do evil to us? Friends, let's pray that this week, that in the weeks to come, in the months to come, in the years to come, that we can have attitudes of love for one another in the church so that even when we have to discuss difficult things, even whenever confusing times come and times of conflict come, that we see each other with eyes of love, that we're patient, that we're willing to serve, and in all things, we worship Christ together. Would you pray with me? Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy towards us. We're all sinners, and you have been infinitely patient. We've struggled in a thousand ways, and you've been patient. We've had weak faith, and you've been patient. We've been lazy, and you've been patient. Not only have you been patient, Lord, but you've striven to serve us and to build us up. And so we praise you for that. Lord, I ask that you would strengthen this church as a family, that you would give each person here a heart to disciple others and to be discipled by others. Lord, drive conflict far from us, drive dysfunction far from us, and bring us together as a team to serve those who need it most. Lord, as we go throughout the rest of our week, we just ask that you would give us hearts to constantly see the world as you see it, to see the church as you see it, and to honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.